Welcome to the Mind and Body Strong podcast, a place for women to redefine their relationship with food and their body, tune into their inner wisdom, and become the best version of themselves. My name is Katie Pijanowski, and I'm an anti-diet and body image coach, certified personal trainer, and lover of all things travel, brunch, and personal growth. Join us each week as we share insightful conversations with guest experts, along with my own personal stories and teachings that aim to help you reconnect your mind, body, and spirit while releasing old beliefs, dogma, and expectations that no longer serve you. Each episode is packed with nuggets of wisdom that are sure to leave you feeling inspired, challenged, and empowered to take action in your own life. Shy away from tough topics? No way. In this space, we welcome things including mental health, sex, diversity, eating disorders, weight stigma, and all that comes with having a human experience. I'm so excited to have you on this journey with me, so grab a notebook, pen, and some headphones, and let's dive in. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Mind and Body Strong podcast. Today, I have with me a special, special guest, and it's my friend, Christine Song. And Chris is an anti-diet food and body image coach based in Toronto, Canada which is awesome. I want to go to Canada and go visit you. (laughs) She works with women who want to rebuild their mind and body connection through an intuitive lifestyle so that they can live in their truth to the fullest unapologetically. She's a former nutritional chef and Chris uses her understanding of food and food relationships to help others dismantle the diet culture mentality that food is medicine, which we're going to dive more into while also supporting their journey to connect back with their bodies in a healthy, joyful, and positive way. And Chris also enjoys spicy food, outdoor music events, and big hugs. And I love big hugs too. So I'm going to have to take a trip sometime and come give you a big hug because you are just incredible. So welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you so much, Katie. I'm really excited to be here. (laughs) I'm so excited too. And for my audience listening in, Chris and I have known each other for probably since what is it, last year, Um, end of last year in 2020. So we have been chatting and like connecting since then through a program we were both a part of, which I've had both of the creators of that program on here, the Anti-Diet Health Coach Camp, Holly Toronto and Julie Olamacher have both been here as well. So we got to connect and it's been such a pleasure to be able to work with you and to have be coached by you you're such an incredible coach and for <laughs> us both to kind of grow in this intuitive eating body acceptance world. So Chris and I like, talk every single week and I thought, you know what, she's got some amazing insight to bring to this conversation around diet culture, especially from her background of being a nutritional chef. And she has a lot to say about how diet culture is really impacted by like racism and things like that. And like how we have actually disowned like the food of our motherland, which we talk about a lot. So there's so much we're going to dive into and I'm so excited, but just for my audience, do you want to give them like a kind of quick overview of who you are, just kind of important aspects of how you've moved through your journey? I, where do we even, where to even begin? (laughs) Right. I feel like it's so hard to pick a starting place of our stories because it's like our whole life (laughs) is like led years. I mean, just wherever you feel is important to start. And I know that we wanted to dive into that nutritional chef piece. So if you wanted to start there. Yeah, for sure. So 
I actually wanted to be a dietitian when I was choosing which program to pursue in university. University is what we call it in Canada. It's college, as you guys call it in America. <laughs> in Canada, <laughs> university and college are actually two different post-grad, uh, post-secondary programs. So anyways, the university is where I got my bachelor degree. And I initially started wanting to be a dietitian. And when I got into the program, I realized it wasn't for me. It definitely wasn't something that felt aligned with me. It wasn't easy for me either because I, the chemistry part, it just really killed me. (laughs) So I switched out of that program and went into nutrition and family studies, actually. Interestingly enough, it fully applies to the work that I do today as a coach. But I initially wanted that program because I thought that I was going to find all the answers to my own issues with food and body, right? And I think that's how so many dietitians start off their path in that way. So many nutritionists start off their path in that way because they have this odd relationship to food and body and they just want to know the answers and they just want to know how to create the perfect formula so that they have the perfect body or they have the perfect nutritional components made up in their body. And I guess as I was going through that program, when I finished it, actually, I decided to go to college, which is a diploma program and study culinary and nutrition. Combine the two because I had basic culinary skills. I was known to be like the one who cooks in my group of friends and the nutrition. So I thought, okay, might as well put the two together. Makes sense. And when I finished that college program, I worked as a nutritional chef for a sports team in Canada, the Toronto Blue Jays. And I also worked on a cookbook, which was a plant-based cookbook specifically for cancer nutrition. And just kind of like dabbled all in there. A lot of the philosophy that I carried at the time was that food impacts so much of your well-being it you know if you eat the right things if you eat the right amount of things like you're going to be super healthy you're going to be you know on the top of your game certain foods help you focus certain foods help you de-bloat and bloating was a huge like um thing that a lot of people cared about at the time when I was doing that work the whole gluten-free craze was like super big there. And I got sucked into that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, so I just was in the thick of diet culture as a nutritional chef. I would tell people what they should and shouldn't be eating. I was the person they went to advice for on how to eat quote unquote right. And given like, you know, some of the symptoms that they were having and blah, 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 blah. After a while, it just like, fed into this really disordered, I guess, lifestyle for myself and something just wasn't right. You know, it couldn't have been like, I guess I was sitting with myself and being like, it can't be this hard. (laughs) It really can't be this hard to just eat food, enjoy my life. You know, it can't be that we're just constantly overthinking how we eat, how we live, how we exercise, how we feel in our bodies. So when I found intuitive eating, and I stumbled upon the world of coaching, it all just kind of came full circle and all kind of made sense. And that's when I finally decided to put in intention and work into 
dismantling my own diet culture beliefs, my own philosophies, having to do complete 180 paradigm shifts for myself because everything in the anti-diet movement, everything about intuitive eating really just combats all of the education that I just spent, <laughs> like what, almost like five to six years just believing and preaching and being. I wrote down so many things. And I think one kind of theme that I was listening to as you were talking is this idea of there's a right way and like a wrong way to eat. and how you entered that program kind of wanting and, and how many dietitians or nutritional people enter into those fields wanting to know the answers mostly for themselves, but also for other people. Like what is the right way to eat for focus, to eat for bloating, to eat for all these different things. And to like, somehow I think it leads back to that. Like what we said in your bio, like people believe food is medicine. Like if I eat the right ways, I will be cured and not feel badly essentially. So yeah. I'd love you to kind of dive a little bit more into that specific thought that food is medicine and kind of tease that out a little bit, because I'm sure that just hearing that a lot of my audience is like, but wait, I believe that too. It's like, there's a lot to unpack with this. I don't even the saying that food is medicine, because I think a lot of people believe that their individual behavior is like the end all be all to their overall health. I definitely believe that. I thought, okay, if I could control what I eat, if I can, you know, get the most high quality types of foods and powders and seeds and had the perfect exercise routine, then my body's going to be an optimal machine and I'm going to live till I'm like 120 years old. You know, that's the belief that we have and that we carry, but coming out of that, you realize, wow, health is actually a very complex system. It is so much more than just our individual behaviors. There's political factors. There are so many social determinants that impact our overall health. And this idea that food is medicine, it's just a lie. <laughs> it's hard to believe that if we just have the right foods around us, that we're going to be fine. Additionally to that, a lot of the foods that are claimed to be superfoods, superfoods aren't even a thing. There's no like actual... <laughs> what do you call it? Like legislation or mandate that like qualifies certain foods as superfoods, right? It's just like a trendy word that we use to describe these high packed nutrient dense foods, but there's not a lot of studies to show like the long-term use of it and like what it really can do, what it really does for us. And these superfoods are like super inaccessible to most people because they're so expensive. They are just outrageous in prices. <laughs> Right. I think that's, that's a really interesting point that you bring up. I'm sure there are people on the podcast listening right now that are like, wait, like I always seek out like the, you know, organic food and the superfoods and like the most optimal seeds and, you know, stopping down the health aisles and stuff and, and thinking that that is the key to unlocking some kind of, you know, like you, you had mentioned making the body this optimal machine. And mm -hmm. it that's kind of what I used to believe too. Like when I entered the health space after college, it was like, oh, if I eat the right things and do the right exercises, my body will be great and I'll feel awesome all the time. And essentially, like, I think what was going on was I wanted to kind of 
be distracted from other things going on in my life and to not experience negative emotions. And it was marketed to me so hard that if I drank these superfood shakes every day and followed these 30 minute workout programs from home every single day that I was going to, to get there. And I think for myself, what I found out happening for me is, and I'd love to hear your experience of kind of how this impacted your relationship to food and your body. But for me, I found myself kind of disconnecting from my emotions and I almost adopted this toxic positivity for a while. And because I was so, I was like, I just have to be positive all the time. I have to show people how it, how it goes. And in turn, I was really just ignoring my hunger cues, ignoring my satisfaction. I was just pushing through, completely disregarding all the messages my body was trying to send me and just logicking my way through because, oh, I have the right plans and I have the right thing. And I was frankly like living off of those paradigms because my businesses ran off those paradigms until one day it just, I mean, it wasn't working anymore. It was completely harmful to me. And you had a, a really great breaking point. It sounds it sounds like this was where you asked yourself, it can't be this hard to eat food. Like, yeah, surely it's not this hard. <laughs> right, right. It was always such a struggle. And just going back to this, like food is medicine belief system. It just places so much pressure on food <laughs> and yes. your decision around food. And when you have this belief that, food can heal the body, food can be the answer to so many of your bodily problems or your mental health problems or your emotional problems. Like if food is medicine, you start behaving erratically around food. You don't know how to trust yourself. You don't know how to trust food. You question everything. You question where it's from, how it was created, what went into it. And that in itself, all that stress all that like mental capacity that just goes into making this idea that food is medicine on this pedestal will drive you up the wall, you know? And that's what makes it so difficult to be around food. So it really can't be that hard. So like if food and food is medicine is something that you have believed in for a really long time, just like I did, right? I definitely feel like it would be really great for us to challenge this, this belief and see what that's like doing for you. What is this belief and reaffirming that food is medicine? What is it really doing for you? How are you actually behaving around food? And is that something that feels good for you? Because I don't know, chances are, it's probably not. Chances are you're going to step back and realize like, wow, I behave weirdly around food and this is not normal. (laughs) Like this is not good for me impacts your relationships it impacts your social set your social life and just like you it it pushed you into this toxic positive like dissociative behavior and that's also not great you become so separated from yourself and you're not even mindful or even present when you're there around food or around your work for me it was like whenever i experienced because of that toxic positivity and only believing that the answers to health were the way I was eating and the way I was exercising. When I was feeling negative, the conversation was, oh no, something's wrong. I have to fix this. And I'm going to do so through food and exercise, which then also perpetuates the cycle of being obsessed about food and about our bodies. And like, 
how we exercise, thinking that it's it's somehow going to like save us. And, and to some extent, like, you know, movements, and we talk about movement so much when we when we talk together, but it can be really healing and really stress relieving. And there's a lot of positive benefits that come from movement. However, people's movement relationship can be very complicated and might have had a lot of different things. Like I know I hated any kind of gym class where they made me run and do sit-ups. I hated that, but I actually innately love moving my body, even as a young kid. Um, but it was so ingrained in, in me that it was like punishment. Like I had to do this to change my body. Same with food. I have to control this so I can control my body. And then supposedly that's supposed to help me like control my life. And I'm not knocking the, the science that goes behind nutrition where, you know, certain chronic diseases, you have to be mindful of certain foods that affect your body. I'm not saying to ignore that. Instead, I'm just trying to promote this idea or not idea, maybe a belief that we don't have to be so fearful around food. We can be knowledgeable of what certain foods do to our bodies and then make the choice ourselves of whether or not we want to allow those foods into our life versus these crazy elimination diets, these pseudoscientific blood tests <laughs> like, mm-hmm. that tell us that we can or can't have certain foods. And it's just, yeah, there's just a lot here. <laughs> there is a lot to unpack about that belief system, just that one. And that's one of many that we have around food. But mm-hmm. I want to kind of take back, take us back to that moment where you had this thought, like, it can't be this hard to eat food. Yeah. What was yeah. going on for you in those moments? That's a great question. I was definitely in a place in my life where things were just not going great for me. I had gone on like a stress retreat in Thailand. I had just booked myself to go and fly out because life was just really challenging at that time. And it really put into perspective of like how I was actually living my life. I was living on autopilot I was just hoping my physical body was going to show up every day without actually taking care of her. You know, I wasn't feeding her right. I was aggressively exercising her. And I guess it was an all-encompassing moment where I'm like, it can't be this hard every day, all the time, right? And it involved how I behaved around my friends. It involved how I was eating, how I was exercising. I'm like, why is this shit so hard? (laughs) And when I, that's when I started understanding mindful practices, meditation, just breath work. And it really helped me step back and look at everything from a different lens. That kind of propelled me to discover intuitive eating. And when intuitive eating, like when I started reading about that, I was like, oh, this is what it's supposed to be like. This is what it is. I'm like, oh my God, I've been, I feel like I've been lied to my entire life. And I'm like, all of my education, not one time was this ever, ever mentioned, you know? And that, that's part of like the bigger problem too, right? In the education system, doctors and dietitians and nutritionists, they're all educated on this weight-centric paradigm. And the whole mindfulness practice, and and that's part of intuitive eating, right? Understanding that interoceptive awareness and reconnecting that mind and body signals. 
that all brought me to the understanding that like, this is easier. This is so much easier than what I've been doing in the past. And this is exactly what I was looking for because everything else prior to the food rules, the counting, the tracking, the hierarchy of like all of these health foods just made it so, so hard. And that's why I believe in the philosophy of intuitive eating, because ever since I've embarked on understanding my intuitive body, not only has it been easier, but overall life has just been less stressful. I feel healthier in my mind and body, in my emotions. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I dread every day trying to think about what I'm going to eat, what I'm going to do. And instead I'm able to listen to my body, drop into her and be like, we're taking on this day together, no matter what comes forward. And that's just how it is for the rest of life. Like it's me, my body and the world. (laughs) I love that, that shift that you just highlighted there of like going into the day, like with your body. Whereas before it was very much, you had voiced that you were just hoping your body would show up. But when you were actually looking at what you were doing, it was like, oh, I was like really forcing myself to exercise and like doing all this crazy stuff with food and essentially like potentially ignoring those signs your body was trying to tell you to like rest and like stop stressing out about food. And now Mm -hmm. it seems like such this like partnership of like, we're going to do this together. Like me totally. Yeah. Before it was very much me versus my body, like my mind wanting something else, my body trying to tell me something else and just my ego and diet culture's messaging telling me no, like they're right. My body's wrong to now being like, I am one and fuck diet culture. (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah. Fuck diet culture. Yeah. And that mind and body connection is so important because that's truly what happens is diet culture wants us to have all these crazy thoughts in our head that are disconnecting us from the messages of our body that is inherently wise and intuitive. And it has all the answers that we need to guide us through this life. I mean, just look back at um, for, for those listeners, like when you're young, you didn't really have to, you, you cried when you were hungry and you got fed and you knew how to get your needs met and to eat and to play with your body, like was inherently intuitive. Like you just knew to do that and that your body was to be played with and to be enjoyed and to experience pleasure. And then we grow up and we're socialized that we need to be so like sergeant-like with all of that, I feel like and to control and to manipulate and to shape and to form and to tone. And we kind of lose that sense of connection and that play and that satisfaction and and all of that. Totally. So good. So I want to kind of take the conversation in a little bit of a different direction, which is talking about the the workshop that y'all had done. You and Raquel, another anti-diet coach, did a workshop called The Color of Diet Culture. So I want to dive in there and tell my audience a little bit about why you and Raquel decided to put that together and what encompassed that workshop, because it was a workshop, right? Raquel and I, we had only met maybe a few months before we did that workshop. She's also from Toronto, like the greater Toronto area, and she found me through Facebook. 
And so we just instantly clicked, connected. She has a background more in the fitness industry where she worked as a personal trainer and I worked in obviously the food side. So we both sort of had this mutual understanding of the anti-diet world and how it like just was so different from what we were used to doing. And we kind of connected there. What also brought us a little bit closer together was seeing how, and, and this is no shade to the industry because I think it's just a normal thing that kind of happened and it's the same in the dietetics world where we noticed that most of the people in the coaching industry are white. And it was, it's not like this whole got to make everything about race thing, but it was just an observation we had. And we realized that, you know, there's a lot of nuance that plays as people of color, as women of color trying to, you know, reclaim their bodies and their lifestyle and their relationship to food and exercise as people of color in a North American world or in the Western society. So we thought it would be a cool idea to sort of put a workshop together where we talked about the racist roots of diet culture, because it's not something that's commonly talked about and or ever really like well understood by many people who are maybe interested in learning about the anti-diet movement. So we just, she was like, Hey, you want to do this? And I was like, all right, sick. Like, let's put it together. She talked about the racist roots of diet culture. And I talked a lot about the patriarchal roots of diet culture and how a lot of these ideas and beliefs that we have about our bodies as women really stemmed from the judgment and rulings of white cis men. <laughs> and yeah, she definitely got into the topic of the, the racist roots of my and how the culture of a big booty now is just like another version of cultural appropriation of the black body and how the thin ideal or the fear of fat is really stemmed from the fear of the black body which is a direct, not quote, but that's the book that Sabrina Strings wrote that talks about the racist roots of diet culture. We just thought it would be something fun to do. We held like a two-day workshop and had some exercises and offered the audience some questions to think about. And yeah, I loved, I remember seeing you guys post about that and I was like, yes, more people need to be talking about this. And I was I've been running a body image workshop and in part of the history of body image, I talked a touch on a little bit of the racist roots of diet culture. And it was very triggering for some of the members to to hear that. And even to me still, it's like really like acknowledging that that's where the separation like started. And it was kind of, I was listening to a, an interview from Sabrina Strings who wrote Fearing the Black Body of how she kind of traced all of these little stems back, like who's quoting who, where did they get that information from? Where does that go back? And she traced it back to like the Renaissance and essentially where they were bringing more black slaves over and basically trying to make it in their minds okay to treat them as almost animals. And so like, yeah. how can we differentiate ourselves from these people oh, well, they inherently, like some, most of them have more fat on their body. So we're going to decide that that is quote unquote bad. Mm -hmm. And wow, that can be like a really, really hard thing to look at. And like, 
just even hearing that again, it wasn't based on any kind of science. It wasn't based on any kind of understanding of the human body. It was literally a decision made based on how somebody looked and what they believed that person to be like based on how they looked. And the world just went with it because that's just how it was. And we haven't changed much of it. It's been centuries now. And we still at the root of diet culture's messaging at the root of the way that the health systems treat fat bodies at the root of it, it all comes back to that. And just like demonizing like fat bodies and just fat in general, making it be this, this health crisis. I mean, you hear people all over, it's like, there's an obesity crisis and this, that, and the other, but where is obesity stem from the BMI scale, which where is the BMI scale from also racism, also not even made to be used in a healthcare system, right? Like it was designed by an astronomer to study populations and they used populations of white European men. So it's just incredible that somehow, somewhere, somebody with, you know, essentially someone's money is always driven by money. When you go back, it's just like, come on, man. Like this is not even about money and power. Like it wasn't even about people's health. And they even like, I think, um, I forget what year it was, but they like even took them the numbers down the BMI even further. So it was like overnight, all the people were considered overweight so that they would that was some health. shady shit. Yeah, that they did. They just were like, you know what? We're gonna we're gonna switch the numbers around. We're not gonna tell anybody. And we're just gonna yeah. do it overnight so that millions of people are considered and labeled overweight or obese. And now all of a sudden their access to medical care is super limited and their initial assessment is just to lose weight just from the label of being overweight or obese. Their first solution is just, well, lose weight and then we'll check the symptoms. And like, that wasn't even anything that it's not something that they can control, like, because the system just fucked them up. (laughs) Yeah. It like talking about this subject makes me so angry at the way that Western medicine has developed. And I don't, blame the people. I blame the system of it because, you know, in any system we have humans and humans are, you know, they have their own opinions and their own errors and that's just how we are. So I don't, I don't judge any of these doctors or blame any of these doctors. That's what they've been taught to believe is right. Mm -hmm. And I think inherently everyone is mostly trying to do things for the better good of themselves and others. I don't think they're out to get people. But when we actually look at the system, it's like, okay, well, if weight loss was the answer, why are more people sick? Why are more people struggling? Like clearly there is other things going on and we need to address the system that is putting people in boxes to like fear for their health in ways that it might not even be a problem. Like it might not actually be a problem what you weigh because And I've heard another doctor who's an anti-diet coach talk about this, that there's most diseases that you would get diagnosed for. You don't need to know a person's weight for at all. 100%. So many other ways that you can look at it. 100%. Yeah. So what was, what do you feel like was the biggest takeaways from doing that, that workshop? Was there like some big awareness piece that your, your audience took from that you and Raquel were like, wow, like these 
things really stood out about being able to bring this to light more to people? I think, so we did the workshop. We were obviously very gung-ho about all the information, you know, like when you get really excited, you're just like all the information, just like pile it on. And it's like, we want to wow people. I think it's definitely heavy content. (laughs) And we, I think it would have been easier to make it a little bit more digestible for the audience because you kind of come out of that workshop being like, whoa, like I just need to reevaluate everything at this point. But I guess like for myself, when I was doing the research, at least on the patriarchal roots, like all the misogyny that exists within diet culture, it really, really lit a fire in me to like, again, like a lot of this work, when you're, when you're discovering the roots and the history, you just get angry, especially as a woman, especially as a woman of color you just get mad. And sometimes that anger turns into, you know, angry posts and you're just like chomping away at your keyboard and you're like, (laughs) (laughs) other times it can also get translated into like, okay, well, how else can I make this information accessible to people to help them challenge the beliefs that they have about their bodies and move forward from a place of empowerment where they can challenge it and start to begin that journey of just reclaiming their bodies back, reclaiming their autonomy from diet culture and society's standards. So that was sort of my biggest takeaway. I had, I, so I, we would put together slideshows as we were doing the talk and I had done one, one slide that had all of the people that were at the head of most of the diets, the biggest, trendiest diets that that people have fallen into. And each one of them was a white cishet man. Man. (laughs) It was just a slide of maybe 12 to 15 white cishet men there. They were the founders. They were the revolutionizers of, you know, the keto diet, intermittent fasting, intuitive fasting, the weight, like all of these crazy whole foods diet, like the whole 30 diet or whatever it was. And it just like made me feel gross. You know, it made me feel really terrible about how, how many women are suffering under this idea that they have to be smaller, that they have to look a certain way to be accepted in society, that they have to that a body, an aesthetic of a body or a lifestyle will give them the answers that they hope to get, which is usually rooted down in just acceptance and love and belonging, right? Mm -hmm. And they go through these extreme behaviors to get there. And you and I were both part of that too. And so that was probably my biggest takeaway from the like patriarchal side of things and just like even talking about it now, I'm like, man, I'm starting to get like yeah. sad and I'm angry. Over, I'm over here like getting mad too. I'm like, man, where are all the, you know, people of color who are starting movements? Where are all the women? Like where, where are their seats at the table? Right. Because mm-hmm. last time I checked, our population isn't just made up of white cis men. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's like, even the women that, that are part of it, like the Jenny Craig. And I think there's a, woman who's at the head of the table for Weight Watchers like we can't even blame them for the things that they hold true 
and believe about what they're doing because that was also ingrained from them. It started from all of these beliefs from men about how they want women to look like. I just want to add this one little bit because it just came up. The Gibson girl. And if you don't know what the Gibson girl, the Gibson girl is actually what sort of started this idea of like this hourglass shaped, very poised, very like beautiful, elevated woman. And the Gibson girl is not actually a real person. There's no Miss Gibson. She was actually created by an artist who was a man who at the time when the whole idea of health and diets were coming up, this man was an illustrator for the biggest news press that existed at the time. And they wanted him to create this ideal woman. So from his own imagination, he created the Gibson girl and she was plastered over all of the media outlets, all of the newspapers. And it all of a sudden became this idea that women strive to be, which blows my mind because she's not even real. She does not exist. She does not exist. He just was like, I'm just going to draw this lady. And then the rest of the world is going to believe that this is how they should be. This is who they should strive to be because she seemed elevated and poised. And she had this persona of, you know, wealth and health and, you know, created this fantasy lifestyle that many women wanted. And we have not looked back since. It blows my mind that it came from an imagination. Just (laughs) someone just decided to draw a photo and said, this is the way all women look. And we internalize that. And we're always like comparing ourselves. I know I find myself even still to this day, even after all the work that, you know, you and I have both done, it's like, I still find myself like comparing to that, like idealized woman in my head and like living up to be her. Because what I've recognized is what I associate with that idealized woman in my head is access to love, safety, belonging, and um, success. That's what it comes down to. And I think at the root of all these body anxieties and body, like it's, it's so hard to actually separate them because we feel like it's so true. No, my body is wrong. This is what's actually happening. My arms are big. My stomach is jutting out too much. We really feel like that is true. But mm-hmm. what we need to recognize and pull back is or really kind of tear apart really is what's actually going on, right? Because for me, uh, this is an experience that happened to me like not too long ago. I, a lot of times when I'm feeling a lot of negative emotions, my thoughts go towards my stomach, my stomach sticking out too much. Um, you know, pants aren't fitting right. Something's wrong with my stomach. I need to change my behavior. And this is like within the last month. So I've been doing anti-diet work for over two years. So to put that in a perspective for my audience and because of the work I've done, I was able to later on that day, put my hand on my stomach and be like, what's really going on here? Like, what is it that I'm really, truly feeling? And in that moment, I was feeling from like my stomach that I was feeling insecure. I'm like, oh, why am I feeling insecure? Well, I had recently been rejected by someone I was seeing for like who I was dating. And I felt really vulnerable about that and rejected. And when I was able to acknowledge how I was actually feeling and thank my body for the messages she was trying to give me, it was like all of the body stuff kind of fell away. It was like all of a sudden I was able to take care of what was actually going on. 
I had read like a post about this, I think it was yesterday, about when we feel quote unquote fat in our bodies. And it's like, are you what, like, what does that really mean? What are we really saying when we feel fat in our bodies? And it comes down to just feeling uncomfortable in our bodies, just like the sense of discomfort. And so when you challenge what that discomfort really is, you, you explore and find out that it's related to something else for you. It was related to a moment of rejection for others. It might be like a moment of stress. Maybe something didn't work out well at work. And, you know, so it's really understanding our bodies in that way and how we can honor what that discomfort is and, and listen to her. It's all about coming back to that, like listening of the body and Mm -hmm. what she actually needs and much opportunity like opens up when you're able to do that. It's no longer this like rigid, tight, narrow hallway that we have to walk down in order to, you know, be this good, perfect woman that we all have, have seen is like, and I've experienced this too of like kind of waiting for life to begin when my body like is ready, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So like we spend so much time as women trying to contort and manipulate our bodies and less time actually like growing our lives. You know, like we're spending so much energy just manipulating our bodies when we could be spending all that time and energy like doing what really matters to us in the world. Whatever Absolutely. that means. Yes. Yeah so crazy and that what really blew my mind too is when you brought up the patriarchal thing about like all the diets are started with like the men because that's just it just blows my mind because like I'm, I was thinking of some in my head as you were talking and I'm like yep who did I hear that from white cis men I will send you a uh, screenshot of it it literally like I wanted to throw up when I saw that I just yeah. it was on my screen I like pushed my chair back and I just stared at it and yeah. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> like my body froze <laughs> and yeah. it felt like there was this uneasy feeling in the pit of my stomach. And I'm just like, what the actual fuck? Like mm-hmm. it was really, it was just thinking about it now. I'm like, Ooh, it's getting yeah. to me. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I do want to like, do acknowledge like the, the anger and the feelings that might be coming up for our listeners too, that are feeling this because it's so normal to, to have that experience of like, oh my gosh, like freezing, feeling like you need to reevaluate everything in your life because like all this awareness can feel really overwhelming. And so I wonder if you have any like short tips or things for maybe how you've helped your clients kind of digest some of this stuff or how you yourself have helped yourself to slowly start to digest these ideas in a way that feels a little bit more manageable, like where would maybe be a good place to start? So I think the first step or the first thing that I would consider is that it's a lot and that's okay, right? We've, and, and digesting this information, the content is going to take its time. You're going to want to like rage maybe in the very beginning, you're going to feel everything. And in that moment, I challenge you to, or encourage you to just sort of pause and be like, okay, like we've just opened a new door and there's a lot of things that are here to unpack. And just like anything else, it's going to take some time. So there's just a lot of room for compassion here 
for the way that you've behaved up until this point. And now that you're here, welcome. And just going to take some, some time. The other thing is it's often that people see anger and rage as a negative emotion, but there is room for it as well. It can definitely light up a fire to create positive change, which I think it's done for most practitioners, activists, and so on and so forth in this anti-diet movement is that the anger and the rage has fueled activism for the greater good. And so if you're feeling anger and you're not comfortable with those emotions, like those feelings are okay and they are valid. And it's about understanding them for yourself. And then like, how can, how do you want to use that for the betterment of you and your circle or the greater good, right? Really a lot of this work, it, it just takes a lot of patience and it's not like a sprint as they say, it's a marathon and it can just allow it to take its time. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. And for that, because I think that when we are disconnecting from diet culture that has taught us for so long that it is this sprint and that we have to kind of race to the other side to get to this goal, it can be really challenging to actually learn this like mindful practice of actually sitting in our uncomfortable emotions Mm -hmm. and just being with ourselves instead of using other coping mechanisms, like maybe over-exercising to disconnect, um, which I definitely did. I definitely used food to numb myself, which I also want to just highlight is totally a fine coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. And we can utilize food in, in helpful ways to help us move through emotions, but that building up our toolkits and learning how to like sit with those discomforts, it does take time. And it's something I didn't even recognize two years ago that I needed to do. And that has been like, so for my life personally, it's been so beneficial. Um, so amazing stuff. I, is there anything else that we didn't cover that you feel like is important, especially around all these topics of like, you know, myths around nutrition, the color of diet culture, what else feels present for you that hasn't been said? I think around, and, and this is just because it's been so true for me as a recent just reclaiming the foods of your motherland if you are a person of color and you are trying to reclaim your life from diet culture that you know you might have experienced a lot of fear around the foods that you grew up with or that maybe your parents have raised you on and that's okay i had that exact experience where i feared rice i feared you know traditional korean foods i would not eat barely any, like I would, I would barely eat anything at like family events and recognizing that food has such a deeper root than just this idea of health and function as fuel, that it's culture, it's tradition, it's ancestry. It's, it's, it brings people together. There's just so many other beautiful aspects to food and it was never right to be, to have your food shunned as unhealthy, as weird, as not fitting, as different. Because, yeah, it's just like, I think it's really, really powerful to reclaim the foods from where you're from, like the foods of your motherland, as I like to call it. 
And that again, health is such a bigger, more complex system than just what you eat or what kinds of exercises you do. So go for the foods that you love, go for the foods that bring you comfort and satisfaction and joy, because those are just as important in your relationship to food as like the food that you're eating. I'd say it's even more important to be honest, to be to enjoy and feel easy and not stress around food, that's more important than what you're actually eating. I'm so thankful that you brought up that that piece because I know that like I felt it when you were talking about it. It's like, wow, yeah, like food gets to be this like celebration and this ancestry and this like connection to culture. And what a beautiful gift that is when mm-hmm. we're able to to come back to that truth and reclaim mm-hmm. our foods for ourselves and reclaim all the other things that that diet culture has has taken from us and and instilled in us and to decide what's important for us and to step into that. Yeah. And you don't have to healthify your food. You really don't. Coming from a former nutritional chef, you do not have to healthify everything you eat. I think that's such an important thing because I know I come across so many people on the internet and in the studio and in my life that are always talking about the hierarchy of food and being able to actually break that down and understand what, and really dive into this complex thing that is health and what that is for you can really be helpful. And I think having a coach to guide you is really, really awesome. So I know you have a one-on-one coaching program. So I'd love for you to tell my audience a little bit about that and where else they can hang out with you if they want to know more. I am currently working one-to-one with my clients in a six-month program called This Is My Body, Love and Liberation, where we get to work on your unique relationship to food, body, and exercise. It's really a one-to-one container is so special because it really is just about you and your journey and your growth. So yeah, that's what I'm doing these days. And if you want to hang out with me, I'm on Instagram. That's at Sofrin underscore, it's S-O-P-H-R-Y-N underscore. That is the name of my coaching business. And yeah, mostly on Instagram. Please send me a DM. I love talking to people and connecting through the social platforms. Yes, absolutely. And go follow her. She gives some fire content that I'm always resharing too. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your expertise and your, your wisdom, Chris. It's been such a pleasure to have you here on the podcast. Thank you so much, Katie. I had a wonderful time. Thank you so much for listening in to this week's episode of the Mind and Body Strong podcast. If you loved this episode, it would mean the absolute world to me if you could leave a five-star rating and review or share a screenshot of the episode on your social media platforms. This helps even more women be able to find the podcast and move towards their own personal transformation. Or come on over to Instagram and send me a DM. Let me know what you thought of the episode or let me know about future topics you'd love to hear here on the podcast. Sending love to you no matter where you're at in the world, my friends. Until next week, take care.